my mom goes to hug me and inside, because I had done a lot of meditation at the time, I'm saying, be with it, feel it, see what happens inside. I know it feels awful, but stay with the hug. So I remember telling my mom, you know, mom, keep hugging me. Let me just see what happens. And, you know, at first I'm a steel drum. I think I'm going to explode. And then later, you know, in the process of it, I start to see that, oh, I'm afraid of the connection. I'm afraid of what happens if she leaves. I'm afraid of being inundated. I mean, there's so many pieces to it that I had to unravel, Jessica. Welcome to the Zen-ish Mommy Podcast. I'm your host, Jessica Gershman. And while I may never reach enlightenment, you will find me here cussing and laughing along the way. This podcast is a place for all women to connect, educate themselves, and slow down because you deserve a moment to pause and press play. We all know that we get a lot from our parents, our eye color, our hair color, our body shape, sometimes how we even parent our children. But what if we could inherit far more than that? What if the trauma our parents, grandparents, or even great-grandparents experienced was passed down through our genetics? I mean, consider that for a moment. You could right now be affected by some traumatic experience that you never actually personally experienced. All of those family skeletons in the proverbial closet would actually really mean something. We all have trauma in our families to some extent, but what factors decide whether it could be passed on to future generations? My next guest believes in the science of inherited family trauma. And hold on, mamas, this is going to be a radically intense podcast. His book, It Didn't Start With You, How Inherited Family Trauma Shapes Who We Are and How to End the Cycle, is the winner of the 2016 Silver Nautilus Book Award in Psychology and has been translated in 22 languages. That's it. People all over the world want to hear this incredible information. Let's give him a warm mom slowdown welcome to Mark Wallen. And ladies, if you love this podcast and you have comments or questions, reach out to me on Instagram at the underscore zen underscore mommy. Subscribe to this podcast, share it with your friends. And if you're so inclined to leave us a rating, a review on Apple or Spotify, it would mean the world to me. Let's take a listen. Mark, welcome to the show. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. I've been following your work, and I can't wait for my listeners to really be educated about the process of inherited trauma, what that's like. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you for having me. So can we start off and define inherited trauma? Absolutely. So let's say that one of our parents or our grandparents had a significant trauma. You know, something terrible happens. They lose their mom or their dad when they're little or our mother or father, they're raised by a grandmother instead of their mom, or they're raised by relatives or placed in an orphanage. Maybe when they're young, one of the siblings got hit by a car or died tragically in some way, or they're born during a war, which would be another significant trauma. An event like this can devastate the family. It can rigidify the family. Now, what we know is the reaction to the trauma doesn't stop with the people who experienced it. So the feelings and the sensations, specifically the stress response, the way the genes express, this can pass forward to the children and the grandchildren. 
affecting them in a similar way, even though they didn't personally experience the trauma. Is there a difference between intergenerational trauma and inherited trauma? No, no. Okay, so just two sides of the same coin. Yeah, you know, generational, intergenerational, inherited, yeah. So when we talk about genetics and epigenetics, what do they determine? Eye color, hair color, or do they have any impression on our emotions and our behaviors? Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a part of the DNA they used to call junk DNA that is really 98% that really has a function of affecting, you know, much more than eye color or hair. That's 2% of our DNA. I think I'll talk about how this happened. So we talked about that significant trauma. And then after this trauma happens, it physically changes us, molecularly changes us, chemically changes us. Literally, it causes a chemical change in our DNA. And this can change how our genes function, sometimes for generations. So there'll be this trauma. And then after this event, a chemical tag will attach to our DNA and tell the cells to use or ignore certain genes, enabling us to better deal with what just happened. And then the way our genes are affected, this will change how we act or how we feel. For example, we can become sensitive or reactive to situations that are similar to the original trauma, even if that trauma occurred in a past generation to our parents and our grandparents, so that we have a better chance of surviving it in this generation. I'll give you an example. You know, we've got a war going on right now in Ukraine. I'm going to give you an example of what would happen during such a trauma. If our grandparents came from a war-torn country, so there's shots going off, bombs going off, people maybe being lined up in the square, people being taken away, the people who experienced that trauma, let's say our grandparents, they would develop and pass forward a particular skill set to help them survive that trauma. So let's say that skill set, maybe there's good things, uh, sharper reflexes, quicker reaction times, reactions to the violence, but it would also contain maybe negative things like fight, flight, freeze reactions, you know, the body freezing, shutting down, sinking into a depression. This is the skill set that gets passed forward now to help us survive the trauma that they experience. The problem is we can inherit a stress response with the dials set to 10. And here we are prepared to deal with this war, this catastrophe that never arrives because we're born generations later. The problem is, Jessica, we rarely make the link that our anxiety, our hypervigilance, our depression is connected to our parents and our grandparents. We just think we're wired this way. And we've normalized so much of, you know, are trying to normalize any kind of mental health effects that you would talk about anxiety, depression. And this seems so new and fresh as far as the information and understanding when you talked about the junk DNA and 98% actually being really important and valuable. You know, I did fascial training and yoga and they used to just discard the fascia and it was like, now they're like, oh, wait a minute. No, it's communicative and really smart and transfers nutrition and, you know, all of this information. And so we seem to be learning so much more. How did you fall into this work and get passionate about it? Well, for me, it happened from a trauma, of course. Like many of us, I had symptoms I couldn't explain. We've got to go back 30 years. I began to lose the vision in one of my eyes. 
And I was diagnosed with a chronic form of retinopathy for which there were, you know, there was no cure. The doctors had no idea what was causing it. The best they could tell me was stress. And so because of the way it was progressing, they told me I would likely lose the vision in my other eye as well. And as you can imagine, here I am, a young man, 30, thinking that I'm going to be blind. And I was desperate to find help. And I went on a search for healing, you know, wherever I'd hear this before the internet, wherever I'd hear of a teacher or someone who had written a book. In other words, wherever I thought the answers existed, I would travel to train with that woman or that man. And my search for healing literally leads me halfway around the globe as far as Indonesia, where I learned from several wise teachers some fundamental principles, one of which was the importance of healing our relationship with our parents. Now, before I could heal my relationship, which was terribly broken, I had to heal what stood in the way, which was inherited family trauma, but I don't know it at the time, specifically the anxiety that I carry in my body, really the anxiety that I had inherited from everybody. All my grandparents had been orphaned in some way. Three of them lose their moms when they're babies or toddlers. The fourth one, she loses her dad when she's a year old. So ultimately, she also loses her mother in the grief. So this anxiety, this was the real cause of my vision loss. And the way it expressed is I had inherited this feeling of being broken from my mother's love. That was what had been passed down in the family because my grandparents had. So literally, I remember being a small boy, five or six years old, whenever my mom would leave the house, I'd run into her bedroom, I'd pull open her drawers, her scarves, her nightgowns, and I'd cry into them. And I, you know, breathing in her scent, thinking that I'd never see her again. And the only thing I would have left would be her scent, which would have been true for those grandparents who their moms died when they're little. So 40 years later, I remember sharing this with my mom. I said, you know, I used to, you know, go into your room when you would leave the house. And she said, well, I did that when my mother would leave the house. And, you know, her mother had lost both parents at the age of two. And then my sister reading the book said, me too. When mom would leave, I'd cry into mom's clothes. So this was like a generational thing, a behavior of thinking we'd never see our mom again. So after healing the broken bond with my mom, my vision came back. And afterwards, I felt compelled to share some of these principles I'd learned. And ultimately, Jessica developed a method for healing the effects of inherited family trauma. That's amazing. Did you grow up thinking of yourself as an anxious person and just kind of oh, yeah. labeling yourself as being wired that way? Oh, absolutely. At 19, terrified of the next anxiety attack, I would carry Valium in my pocket just because no matter where I would go, I would have these terrible anxiety attacks. Little did I know that these anxiety attacks were the tear of the infant who was separated from his or her mom. That's generational. And then if we looked in my childhood, there were a lot of events that also separated me from my mom, including hospital stay, being a forceps baby, several events when she was pregnant with me, the pregnancy almost diminished, got lost. So yeah, I had a terrible break in the attachment. So tell me, you had this experience and obviously this terrible illness or diagnosis, and you traveled around the world. 
And I listened to your talk and you had a, a couple of wise teachers go tell you to go speak with your parents and you work on mending the bond and you're finding these connections with other family members. Was it an easy relation to take that information and be like, well, I must have inherited this trauma. I mean, there had to have been more work and the scientific research behind that to be able to really connect all of those parts. Cause a normal person would just be like, well, that's a coincidence or that's strange. And I'm still suffering from this anxiety. Yeah. See, I don't know what's going on. I just know back then I'm anxious and I've lost mm-hmm. my eyesight, terrified of going blind. And I know that I have issues at that point in relationship that, you know, it's difficult to bond So I don't know when I go home that I'm healing the bond with my mom. These wise teachers just keep saying to me, go home and heal the relationship with your parents. You know, we know that our early relationship with our mother is the foundation for building safety and security. It's the foundation for trusting life, for trusting experiences, for trusting people, trusting the care we receive, trusting our partner in relationship trusting a therapist, trusting our doctor, trusting our body. And when we can't take in our mother's love, all the elements associated with being mothered, security, safety, comfort, nurturance, can feel missing in our lives. So no matter how much we have, it can feel like we never have enough. So I don't know any of this. I just know that when my mom goes to hug me, it feels like I'm being squeezed and I don't like it and stop hugging me, mom. But when I had gone home, My mom goes to hug me and inside, because I'd done a lot of meditation at the time, I'm saying, be with it, feel it, see what happens inside. I know it feels awful, but stay with the hug. So I remember telling my mom, you know, mom, keep hugging me. Let me just see what happens. And, you know, at first I'm a steel drum. I think I'm going to explode. And then later, you know, in the process of it, I start to see that, oh, I'm afraid of the connection. I'm afraid of what happens if she leaves. I'm afraid of being inundated. I mean, there's so many pieces to it that I had to unravel, Jessica. And scientifically, how did you begin to start to prove this theory? Because we're talking about things that aren't measurable, emotions, feelings, anxieties, things that aren't a tangible properties. So this is a good question also, because there's not a lot of science about inherited trauma at this time. And the science doesn't come about till about 15 years ago. And I start writing this book 10 or 11 years ago. And, you know, it takes me eight or nine years to write this book. And it's interesting, as I'm writing the book, I'm finding out that memories of trauma, because the science is just starting to come out, I coast the like the surfer hitting the top of the wave. Right as I'm writing this book, here comes the science. And I'm learning that memories of traumas are imprinted in our parents and grandparents, sperm cells and egg cells. And then this information passes forward to us. And then as a result, you know, we can be born with altered brains that prepare us to biologically cope with these traumas that are similar to the ones that our parents and grandparents have experienced. So that information is coming out at the time. And then there's all these studies, which I could go into if you wanted me to, studies with mice, studies, you know, about the Holocaust studies. I mean, I'm happy to talk about the science. Yeah, I think it's interesting. I think the study with mice is really fascinating because I think that one that comes out, because it's hard to imagine. And so a question is, when someone's listening to this, what are the signs that we start to look at for inherited trauma? If someone's like, oh, maybe that's me, or I'm just an anxious person, or, you know, how does that work? You bring up a good point. You know, let's look at how the researchers and the scientists began to understand 
how they can observe this for three generations. Because if you think about it, the science just comes out 15 years ago, but it takes you know 15 to 20 years to get a generation in humans. How do they know it's three years? And for that reason, they start to look at mice because mice and humans share a similar genome, similar genetic makeup. 90% of the genes in over 90% of the genes in humans have counterparts in mice. And over 80% of the genes are identical. Plus, you can get a generation in 12 to 20 weeks in mice. So you can look at multiple generations. So in one of the studies, this is one of my favorite ones, at Emory Medical School in Atlanta, they take male mice and they make them afraid of a cherry blossom-like scent. You know, the scent comes in the cage. And as soon as the mice smell it, they shock the mice. And then they see changes in the blood, in the brain and in the sperm, specifically right there with those shock mice in that first generation, there's enlarged areas of the brain. This is an epigenetic change where there's a greater amount of smell receptors so that the mice could detect the scent at lesser concentrations. It's what we were talking about earlier, you know, that there's a, this altered brain begins to happen. Their brains had epigenetically adapted to protect them. So the researchers have an idea. Well, what happens if we take some of that sperm from these male mice that are shocked and have these now enlarged brains and impregnate females who are not shocked? Let's see what happens. Well, that's the amazing thing. In the second and third generation, the pups and the grandpups, they become jumpy and jittery just by smelling the smell. They're not shocked. All they have to do is smell the smell and then they start having the stress response. They'd inherited the stress response without directly experiencing the trauma. Now, I want to talk about another study before I go into the signs, because this affects mothers and babies. One of the most replicated studies in all of epigenetics is taking baby mice and separating them from their moms, not even for a long period of time, Jessica. You know, in my book, I talk about this one study where researchers prevented females from nurturing their pups for up to three hours a day, just for the two weeks of life, just for three hours a day. It doesn't seem like very much. You know, you That's think exact- about bringing your kids to daycare, right? That's what we're talking about. Right. So up to three hours a day for the first two weeks of life. And then later in life, their babies, their offspring exhibited behaviors similar to what we call depression in humans. And the symptoms seemed to worsen as the mice aged. Surprisingly, you know, some of the males did not express the behaviors themselves, but appeared to epigenetically transmit these behavioral changes to their female offspring, which is insane. It's like fathers going off to war and coming back numb from the trauma, and then their daughters carrying their father's fight, flight, or freeze response, his shaking, his terror, his shutdown. Anxiety. Yeah, and it's not just the fathers and daughters. Because as we learn, trauma is an equal opportunity employer. Male children and female children are equally impacted by a mother or a father's trauma. Here's a recent study I'll talk about in Journal of American Medicine Psychiatry that followed mothers who suffered trauma as children and found that their daughters were more likely to struggle with depression or bipolar disorder. And then there's a recent Tufts University study that found that men who suffered trauma as children could pass their anxiety to their children through their sperm. And the reason this study is significant is because this is the first study 
that shows that human sperm mirrored the same changes, the same non-coding RNA changes that were found in the mice that were traumatized as pups. So that's really significant. I have all these studies on my Facebook page. They're in my book and they're on my Facebook page. So the question when we're working with trauma is whose trauma are we working with? We really don't know until we peel back the layers and do some investigative work. You know, in my book, I teach people how to do a genogram, a traumagram, and then to look at the events in the previous generations. But the bigger question that you just asked me before is, how do we know? How do you, Jessica, how do I know if we're carrying, because I didn't know, if we're carrying the effects of inherited family trauma, what are the signs? And I'll talk about them, but I'm going to use myself for a second here. I didn't know I was carrying signs. I didn't know that my vision or my anxiety had to do with anything of the previous generation because we can be born with an anxiety or a depression and never separate it from the events of the previous generation. But we can also experience a fear or a symptom that strikes suddenly or unexpectedly, let's say when we reach a certain age, let's say age 30, all of a sudden we no longer love our wife or our husband. And we don't make the connection that that's the same age around when our parents separated or the same age when grandma became a widow and never married again. So ages can be significant, but it can also be we hit a certain milestone or experience a certain event in our lives. For example, as soon as we get married and we never connected. In the book, you remember reading the book, I talk about this woman. She loves her fiance. He's the greatest guy in the world. She can't wait to marry him. But as soon as she marries him, she feels trapped and she doesn't understand it. So she shows up in my office. And when we look back in her family history, both of her grandmothers in Iraq were given away as child brides. But one grandmother was nine years old when she's promised to a much older guy And the other grandmother is 12 years old. These are children. And they're promised to these men 40 years old, 30 years older, 40 years older. So it was interesting when I looked in her family history, but I also worked with both of her sisters. The one sister, so here she is, she's fine until she gets married and then she feels trapped. The other sister marries a man 30 years older. And then the other sister refuses to date at all lest she feel trapped. So, you know, the trigger event is visualizing or marrying or thinking of marrying or even doing like the grandmothers, marrying a man much older. Now, being married is one triggering event. Another triggering event could be moving to a new place. And then suddenly, Jessica, you know, we become depressed like our ancestors that were persecuted or forced out of their homeland, or they had to move to America because you know, things were terrible. People were being raped or killed. So just moving, we move around the block, we move across town, and all of a sudden that depression begins to rise up. Another event could be we get rejected by our partner. And then uh, this would have been mine. And then the grief is insurmountable. And then it takes us back to a much earlier grief, which would be a break in the attachment with our mom. And we don't realize it until we get left or abandoned. And then that takes us back to a much earlier abandonment in our childhood. Another one is we go to have a child. And that's the triggering event. And it's as though there's this ancestral alarm clock that starts ringing. I once worked with this 
woman and she was consumed with anxiety, Jessica. She had no idea. She just, you know, like me, she just has this terrible anxiety. And I go, okay, let's work. When did this anxiety begin? She goes, I don't know. Well, come on. How many months ago? When did it start? She goes, I don't know, six, seven, eight months ago. What happened eight months ago? She said, well, that's when I became pregnant. And of course, I knew she was pregnant. Um, And I said, ah, so you're pregnant. So what's the worst thing that could happen to you if you have a baby? And she said, I'll harm my baby. And those are the words she used, I'll harm my baby. And I said, have you ever harmed a baby? She said, no, of course not. And I said, did anyone in your family ever harmed a baby? And she was just about to say, no. And then she said, oh, my God, my grandmother is a young woman. She lit a candle and caught the curtains on fire and then caught the house on fire. And the baby's upstairs on the second floor and she can't get the baby out. And then she starts to glaze over and she starts to, you know, you could see it. And she says, but we were never allowed to talk about it. You never said anything to my grandmother. And then at that moment, we were able to make the link that she had inherited the terror from her grandmother. And after that, we could break the pattern. So fascinating. We have heard just in common talk about, you know, breaking the cycle, whether it's single mothers, divorced parents, or like, oh, we're going to be the ones that stay together. We're not going to be like our parents. And to think for a moment that it's more than just your environment being around, but there's a genetic component to some of these decisions of maybe not being able to stay or going into an abusive relationship, not being able to stay married, that there might be a genetic component of that that's perpetuating the cycle. That's right. There's absolutely an epigenetic component to lots of what we do, or there is our early trauma history. You know, when we're little, maybe in utero, mom and dad were splitting up or mom wasn't going to keep us initially. So I have a feeling I should talk about these events that can cause early trauma. I think I will. I think it's important here. So I always ask people I work with, what happened when we were in the womb? The events in utero, did a baby die before us? Was there a miscarriage or a stillborn beforehand? And our mom was worried that we could die too, So she was terrified when she got pregnant because she'd already lost a baby. So she was feeling, "Uh uh-oh, something's wrong. I don't feel the baby kicking. Or what if this baby dies? Or I'm not going to tune in yet because this baby will die too. And then that breaks the attachment. Or maybe our mom wasn't going to keep us. And for the first few months, she wasn't attuning into the pregnancy because she, she was going to abort the baby. Or our parents were fighting or they were drinking, or someone was cheating, or they were separating, or dad was an alcoholic, or mom didn't feel supported, or she didn't love our father and she felt trapped, like those Iraqi women, or she was worried about money, or shelter, or food, or during the pregnancy, her mom died, her dad died, her sibling died, her best friend died, or a war was going on, right? These things we're talking about, all this translates into cortisol which is caustic, which can feel assaulting to the fetus, to the point where fetuses even develop a cortisol-busting enzyme to deal with the stress. I talk about that in the book of the mom. So look, we know that in utero, after 20 days, the heart is developed. That's 20 days into the pregnancy. We have our heart. We also have our nervous system, our neural groove, and our neural tube that which will become the nervous system, that's present after 20 days. 
So the events during gestation, birth, labor, delivery, infancy, childhood, you know, did mom's body almost reject the pregnancy? Did the baby almost become ejected? Was there a long labor? I talked about forceps that I had, which causes a trauma. Was there a difficult delivery? Was there an adoption, a forced separation, an incubator, a hospitalization, you know, vacation too early? There's so many things. Like even when we were little, did we have to go back and forth between mom and dad? Or were we sent to grandma's for the summer when we were only three? That's too early. It can go on and on. Did our mom feel lonely when she was a young mom? Was she away from her family? Was she away from our father? Did she not feel chosen by our father? Did she feel stressed? Did she not get enough from her mother? And then she couldn't turn around and give it to us as a baby. You see what I'm saying? There's so many things, Jessica, that affect our early trauma life that even though I'm the inherited family trauma guy, I find that 80% of the time I'm working with attachment. It seemed like you have just listed off stuff that would account for 98% of the population to have experienced one, if not several of those somewhere along the line. Yes. But the question is, yes, it's normal. These things are normal. But the question is, is did they get repaired? Was there a reparation? Did mom sense it and she was able to repair it? Or did we then react to the trauma and become efficient, capable, independent, threw our blanket out of the crib, no longer trusted our mom's love. And then our mom said, oh, that's my little independent one. She doesn't need anything. He doesn't need anything. He's all independent. She's all independent. And mom missed the cue. That independence was a cry for connection, but it didn't get seen. And when it didn't get seen, Jessica, you know, she gave it to the other children who needed it because she thought we didn't need it. So when we see these types of things, I mean, you're just speaking about me and I had a traumatic life or birth experience where I almost died and had the umbilical cord wrapped around my neck. And then subsequently later, I think I stood up on my own within being a few hours old. My mom will tell this story, you know, hand to God that I held onto her little fingers being, you know, still in the hospital and stood up and the nurses came running in as like, you know, don't let her do that. And here's my mom, like, I'm not letting her do that. I'm like, Maybe that was that response. Maybe that was that independent, you know, almost immediately. I mean, I don't know, or that was my personality. How do you start to decipher what's inherited and what's currently affecting you? Yeah, there's so much to unpack in that one question. Let me talk a little bit more about breaks in the attachment because I think they're important here. So when we have a break for the baby, the child, it's a challenge to feel safe and secure in life later on. Because if mom's connection is cut off, we can have difficulty trusting the feeling of who we are inside because a child's inner experience of himself or herself is dependent on mom's attunement. Now, mom's attunement doesn't have to be perfect. Edward Tronick says it has to just be about 30 psychologists who studied moms and babies for a long time. Most of the time. It just has to be 30%. Really? That's not even most of the time. No. Yeah. Just 30% (laughs) because these breaks build resilience. So they're also a good thing, but let's get back to when they're not a good thing. So a break in the bond with our mom can feel like a break in the bond with ourselves. The psychoanalyst Heinz Kohat talks about how the gleam in the mother's eye is the vehicle 
through which a child develops in a healthy way, develops a healthy narcissism. But when we're cut off from our mom's presence, let's say she and dad are fighting, she and dad are separating, she didn't get enough from her mom, she's an alcoholic, then we're cut off from our core. And what that means is we're cut off from our gut feelings. So when we're cut off from our mom's presence, we can be cut off from our gut feelings. It's And it's through her attunement that we develop our core, that we develop our sense of self. It's like she looks at us and says, there you are. Oh, there's my little Jessica. Oh, how precious. Oh, you're so happy when I look at you. Look at you smiling. The baby feels this connection. It goes, me smiling, me happy, me good, me seen. And so that's how we develop this inner core, this inner felt sense experience of mommy sees me, I'm okay. But if that's broken, then when the mother's depressed or not in sync with her baby, the baby's out of sorts. The message is something's wrong. And then we start to take care of our mother. In other words, if she's afraid, I'm afraid. And if her attention is diverted because of stress or panic, it's like, where did she go? Where did she go? We could tell ourselves these messages like, I don't matter. I'm not enough. I'm too much. Or ultimately, something must be wrong with me. Or we can learn to organize around mom's feelings, mom's feeling states. It's as though we're saying, if I can make mom feel okay, then I'll be okay. And that feeling of leaving to attend to our mother, repeatedly leaving our core because we no longer trust receiving from her, you know, we're now taking care of her, but inside we feel alone and we yearn for the security that's missing, the dopamine that's missing from in the brain's reward motivation circuitry. We, now, all of a sudden, as an adult, we're searching outside ourselves for what's missing. We're searching for alcohol, drugs, sex, uh, cell phone, Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, binging on Netflix, being addicted to the news, anything, because we no longer can stay inside with that feeling. So you asked me the question of how we know it's from a break in the attachment or early trauma or how we know it's inherited. And for that, you remember in the book, I teach people how to listen to their trauma language. And this is important because in the trauma language of the book, and that's the things that we say, one of the questions I ask, and I already asked that woman that had fear of harming her baby, remember? I said, what's the worst thing that will happen to you? If things suddenly, and I asked this in the book, if things go terribly wrong, if things suddenly fall apart, what's the worst thing that could happen to you? What's your worst fear? And the way people answer that question tells me as a clinician right away that we're dealing with attachment or we're dealing with generational trauma. So if it's attachment trauma, we're hearing sentences like, I'll be all alone. I'll be abandoned. I'll be rejected. I'll be left. I'll lose control. I'll be helpless. I'll be powerless. That's what babies feel. Helpless, powerless. I won't matter. I won't exist. I'll lose everything. That's what a baby would feel. That's attachment trauma. But there's other language that we use that tells us it's generational trauma. Like that woman, I'll harm my child. That's not attachment. That's generational. Here's some more generational language. I'll do something terrible. I'll be hated. It'll be all my fault. I'll be ostracized. I'll be sent away. I'll be forgotten. I'll go crazy. They'll lock me up. I'll lose everything. I'll lose my family. I'll do something terrible. I won't deserve to live. I'll kill somebody. I'll hurt a child. 
These sorts of sentences, you can hear them, Jessica, they go to a generational energy where the other ones go to an attachment energy. Did I answer your question? Did and as a party trick last night, I was at dinner with four friends and I was talking about the interview today. So I asked that particular question. So three of them answered with attachment, you know, abandoned, feel lonely. My one girlfriend who was born in Lebanon answered with, I'm afraid of dying in a catastrophic death. And her family fled when she was two months old to the United States to get out of a war-torn country. See, I didn't know great. that when I asked you, the question. See, you are so good. You already got the understanding of the book by just asking that question. That's exactly right. So here you are with your friends and three of them answer with attachment. You could feel the answers were attachment. And this one woman, which is also attachment and generational because she's two months old, born in a war-torn country. So her mom's stressed and that's going to be attachment, but also I'll die in a catastrophic event is generational. So that woman would carry both. That's exactly right. That's a good usage of putting my book to um, practice. It's fascinating. Well, and I also feel there are so many mental health practitioners out there that are addressing maybe the, some of the symptoms of or the everyday occurrences of anxiety, depression, other mental health factors. Are there clinicians out there trained for the signs of inherited trauma that are looking for these? Yeah. That's what I do. That's what I do. I train clinicians how to work with both attachment and intergenerational trauma. And I have this great training on my website. That's what I do. It's I take people through it and it's streamable at your own pace, home study if you're a mom. And it, that's what it does. It tells you how to decipher, how to look for, and how to work with inherited trauma, how to decipher and how to look for generational, I mean, attachment trauma. And then what to do, because that's the key here. The key is what do we do once we you know, discover that I'm dealing with attachment trauma or I'm dealing with intergenerational trauma? How do we heal? Yeah, exactly. How do we heal? How do we start <laughs> to move forward? Yeah, That's what well, everybody that's, wants it, to know. Yeah. So it's a really good question. And that's what I spend videos and videos teaching. But I'll give you this short answer. We've got to have positive experiences that change our brain. So positive experiences that we then practice, practice the new feelings and the new sensations of these positive experiences. And then when we practice them, you know, what is a positive experience? I'll talk about that. But let me talk about what happens when we do this. We begin to create new neural pathways in the brain. We also begin to stimulate the release of feel-good neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, and GABA. We then stimulate the release of feel-good hormones like estrogen, oxytocin. Even the very genes in our body begin to move, function in an improved direction. Literally, we can change the way our DNA expresses, which we learned from the mice studies. So what are these positive experiences? Well, in the book, I teach how to receive comfort and support even when there was none how to give it to ourselves or how to receive it from parents, even when our parents couldn't give it or ancestors. So that's a big part of the book. I also teach how to have feelings of compassion for ourselves and for what our ancestors or parents had gone through, or how to have a gratitude practice 
or a generosity practice, doing something kind for someone every day, or a loving kindness practice, or practicing mindfulness, ultimately anything that allows us to feel strength, peace, and joy inside, and then have a curiosity and have wonder and have awe, because these types of experiences feed the prefrontal cortex. And that can help us reframe the stress response. So it is a chance to downregulate, a chance to calm down. The idea is to get out of our limbic brain. The idea is to pull energy, pull traction away from our limbic system, our overactive amygdala that's twice its normal size, and bring engagement to the forebrain, specifically the prefrontal cortex. So it is a chance to calm down. So our brains can change. We know from the mindfulness studies that practicing mindfulness actually shrinks the amygdala and thickens the prefrontal cortex. Basically, to put it in a nutshell, and this is what I work with all day long, we need to practice being with the uncomfortable sensations, the intolerable sensations, the terror sensations, the anxiety sensations in our body that we don't want to go into. We don't want to go there because it feels uncomfortable. We want to go on social media instead. We want to pick up our cell phone instead. We want to exercise instead or, or do something else. But the key is to be with what's uncomfortable until we reach what's beneath that, which are the life-giving sensations in our body, like pulsing, my heart's pulsing, my blood's pulsing. I can feel that. I can feel that pulsing in my throat. I can feel that pulsing in my chest. Wow. I can feel that pulsing down in my womb or my intestines. I can feel that pulsing in my pelvic floor. Sometimes I have people hold that pulsing in four different places at the same time, or have people feel tingling in their body or softening of the fascia. You were talking about how important the fascia was. Absolutely. It communicates to us. So feel that fascia softening or expanding, feel blood flowing in our body, feel waves of energy, waves of warmth. Sometimes when I'm working with people, I'll have them feel, I'll ask this question, if you were not the dense body, if you were the aliveness of this body, if you were particles of energy, if you were waves of energy, what's happening? Oh, I'm feeling a swirling in my body or a sparkling of these energetic impulses, or I can feel these particles sparkling, or I can feel like I'm moving in a figure eight, an infinity sign. Then to be able to hold those sensations for at least a minute, Jessica, hold those sensations physically, become those sensations for at least a minute and do that six times a day. That can be enough to change the brain and calm the stress response. I mean, as a yogi, you're speaking my language. I mean, I teach <laughs> mindfulness and meditation and yoga as a means to accessing our inner aliveness and our joy. You know, as I said, I did my trauma work a handful of years ago and I felt that calling. Is it too late for my daughters? I can get, I mean, do I get them to start? I mean, the genetics have been passed or not passed at this point. They've been passed, but the beauty is we can heal at any time, at any time. Look, let me say a sentence about that for moms. Children often express what's unresolved between the parents. They also express what's unresolved behind the parents, but they also can mirror to us what we felt at their age, but we've suppressed it. We've shut it down. So we've become independent, but our kids are clingy and they want to sleep with us and cling to us. What is our child showing us about us is the question. What did we feel at our child's age? So what I want to say about that is 
it's important for us to teach our children not only what happened in the family or what happened to them when they were little, but also this practice of tingling, sparkling, swirling. It's also important for us as parents to hold our kids and say, hey, when you were little, I wasn't there. I was going through a lot. It's true. And I know you felt it. And it must have been so painful for you when I wasn't there. But here I am right now. And I've got you. And I'm going to breathe with you. And I'm going to hold you until you feel safe, until you feel held, until you feel seen. Actually, I'm going to put my hand where you have that tummy ache. I'm going to put my hand where you have that feeling of scariness when you go to sleep at night. And I'm just going to breathe with you and say, mommy's here, daddy's here until you feel safe. Because that's what we can do at any age. That's what we can do. It just gave me chills. It was so powerful because I know there's so many moms out there listening that, you know, feel helpless. It's like, oh, did I already mess up? And what can I do? And to know that, you know, we can still, no matter at what stage, be there and support and start to change and have effect. Yeah. You know, at any age, at 13, at 18, at 20. So let's say we have a 25-year-old and Maybe the 25-year-old doesn't let us hug them the way I let my mom hug me at that, you know, at 30. But we can still look into our child's eyes and take their hands and say, look at me. When you were little, it's true. I was fractured. I was scattered. I was scared. I wasn't feeling supported. And it must have been so scary for you. But I've got you right now. And you can take here. Take from my hands. Pull it in. Pull it into your heart. I know you're 25 years old, but just look at me. I'm here now and I see you. I really see you. And you can take because now I'm strong enough and I can give. That's so beautiful. We just want to be seen and be heard. Yeah. Mark, this is such a pleasure. Thank you so much for your insight. Mm. Um, website, I know you said you have a course coming out that's streaming soon. Where can listeners it, it, get it? They touch? can already get it. It's okay. just it's just been released. So my website is Mark with a K, Woolin, W-O-L-Y-N-N.com. And right on my website is my training. I really like this training. It really takes you step by step all the way through. And if you just want to go for a deep dive, if you're not a clinician, it does that. It takes you through your own trauma work. But if you're a clinician and you want to use this work in your practice, it does that too. Absolutely. And we'll put all the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for your time. You're so welcome, Jessica. I enjoyed talking with you. 